Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying... I'm Nick Houghton, 40%German.com, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barry. How are you, Baz? Look, we spoke about this. You're not allowed to just change my name to Barry for the sake of alliteration for a segment about birthdays. Ah, oh, come on, don't be soft, like... Let's change your name. No. Go on. No. Change your name by deed poll. 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 No. Ain't gonna happen. End of. Oh. If I were to change my name by deed poll, I think Max would be the final choice. Max Maddox. Sounds like a total stunt. Max Maddox sounds like a villain from a badly translated Japanese video game. All my instincts is be your, your mum looks. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming back at you. <laughs> you got me fired up. Your your mum looks like Max Maddox. <laughs> harsh, very very harsh. Yeah. Anyway, how are you? How are you, Barry? I mean, Simon. Yeah, watch it, mate. Watch it. Oh, oh this will be a very short recording if you carry on like that. <laughs> Easiest podcast to edit. <laughs> and that's goodbye from us. <laughs> yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, ticking along. Did my first event the other day. The wife received a culinary tour of Gostenhof. She'd done one of these before in Nordrhein-Westfalen, but uh, she got a, a voucher to do it down here, and she was quite focused on using this voucher and not letting it sit in a drawer for another year, so she signed us up a couple of months ago. And in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to be fully vaccinated by then, it'll be fine. So I went to the meeting point, and I'd done some research about this and realised that there was a maximum of 16 other people that could be there, and I was already a bit like, that's quite a few mm-hmm. people, but it won't be that busy, corona's still going on got there and there was 14 other people and I was just immediately like oh holy shit uh, that's a lot of people a lot of strangers and nobody was wearing masks really everyone was like keeping their distance um, but I just had a total freak out and this woman started like talking about Plera uh, now Nick knows Plera anyone from Nuremberg will know Plera anyone from elsewhere probably won't Plera sounds like the motorway when you're standing in the middle of Plera. There's a lot of transport mm-hmm. going by, police sirens, everything. It's, it's a busy part of the city. And so this this tour guide is giving us information about things that I can't really understand because of the volume and, and my panic at the same time. So it didn't start very well, but after a while I settled in and we, we had a, a pleasant afternoon, all things considered. And yeah, by the time I'd forgotten that I was scared of people. So I think it was quite a successful first foray into the real world, but it did show me that I'm still carrying some, some trauma, even though I'm double vaccinated and these things are going to have to be sort of adjusted to. So hopefully that was, yeah, the first dip in the paddling pool of reality. I had a similar... A similar experience, actually also in a Plera, Augsburger Plera, where they have the, the Volksfest usually. Okay. F- like a familian tag or a, I forget what they call it, familian, familian event. And it, it's, it's basically Volksfest without the beer halls mm-hmm. or the beer tents. And it was nice. I did get the angst at the beginning that I think everyone's going to get when they're in a large crowd. Again, if they've got any self-awareness, at least... <laughs> What was interesting, though, was there were two queues. There was one queue for the people who had downloaded the Corona app, which was much shorter than the very, very long queue of people who had not 
downloaded the Corona app oh, really? and were filling in little pieces of paper. I can understand why people don't want to download it, but at the same time, it felt a little bit like maybe we're having similar issues as other countries about people maybe being too lax or feeling too comfortable about, oh, the pandemic's over now, we're going to the, the Plera for a for a nice day out. Yeah, I think statistically as a nation, Germany's done quite well on getting people to to use the app compared to others and the app itself has, has been quite successful however there has to be sort of more usability attached to it and i think mm -hmm. people will have to adapt to using it more often because it is the platform for using your your covid passport mm -hmm. so i mean i've i've had it the whole time but i did turn off detection on quite a few occasions because mm -hmm. Yeah, when I'm sitting at home, I don't need it with the Bluetooth running the whole time. But yeah, for checking into restaurants and to garden centres and the like, it, it was used quite a few times. And yeah, it's definitely easier than touching a pen that's been touched by someone before you. And I think those are the kind of reasons that I was very, very keen to have the app. Scanning a QR code is fast. I feel like I'm on the cutting edge of German technology. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, you get to go in quicker. And surely that's that's the whole point. It did feel a bit like old school Germany. We don't want to download the technology. We don't want to use the technology. What I would say is get the vaccine, wear a mask, wait until the pandemic's over, and then let's all go <laughs> sounds, for a drink. That sounds good. That would be quite nice. Yeah. Just be a bit patient. Let's make sure Christmas has a Christmas market instead of what we had last mm. year, which was infinitely more depressing. Yeah. Anyway. So launch day for this here episode number 34 is July 31st. August is knocking at the door already and it feels like summer is getting ripe for enjoyment now. Vaccine numbers creep ever higher and I know for those of you who joined us last week will be hoping to hear Barry's birthday bonanza. Yay! But alas, there is no Barry. Oh. And in fact, no birthday. In its place, a historic event. Happy days, you lucky, lucky ducks. As it happens... On this day, launch day in German history, there was, drumroll please, a change in the Grundgesetzes. <laughs> That's right, exciting stuff. In 1970, on this day, a change was made to alter the age of voting rights in the Federal Republic of Germany. Gone were the days of voting with 21. Tossed to the cavernous catacombs of history, a new sun rose, a new dawn. From that day on, 18-year-olds had the vote. Yeah, democracy. More democracy, baby. <laughs> Gotta love it. And what happened to the election following the change in the Grundgesetz? Well, looking at the numbers, in the 1972 elections, there was a 5% improvement for the Social Democratic Party, SPD, which were in fact the only party to make gains from their previous election results. This was, of course, the party of the wonderfully named Willy Brandt, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winning Chancellor. We spoke about Bayern being different last week. Well, this election was no exception. Only two tiny pockets of Bayern voted for Brandt's SPD, the rest of the state choosing to stick with the CSU. Oh, Bayern. Oh, Bayern, indeed. How much do you know about Willy Brandt? Yeah, I know that he's a chancellor and I like his name a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Willy, Brandt, Willy Brandt is, I think he's still regarded as one of the most popular politicians of all time in Germany. I think mm -hmm. he was only, if I'm right, he was only chancellor for about five years, but in a really pivotal period of of German history. To just to give a quick bio, Willy Brandt was born in 1913. Uh, he joined the, the Socialist Youth in 1929 and the, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, in 1930. Obviously, you can imagine being a politician in the 1930s must have been pretty depressing, pretty difficult, especially if you're left of centre or left-leaning during the rise of National Socialism. And unsurprisingly, Brandt left Germany 
1937, he travelled to Spain as a journalist during the Spanish Civil War. Okay. And in, in 1938, the German government revoked his citizenship, so he had to apply to become a Norwegian citizen, which began a very long relationship he had with Norway. In 1940, he was actually arrested in Norway by the occupying German force, but they could, didn't identify him because he was wearing a Norwegian uniform, and so they just let him go. He escaped to Sweden, and, uh, and in 1940, he became a Norwegian citizen, and he basically lived out the, the, the war years from Scandinavia. He, he did some lecturing, and you can imagine he was pretty angry and upset and saddened by what he was seeing that was happening in Germany through the war years. And then in 1946, he came back to Berlin, uh, working for the Norwegian government. And in 1948, he joined the SPD again and became a German citizen again. And so he was back into politics. So he had quite a turbulent history. Mm. But this is this is really important because it's one of the reasons why he was possibly so popular, but definitely one of the reasons why he was able to do what he did in his political career, because he wasn't tainted by connections with National Socialism, which a lot of politicians at the time were. Now, mm. we've talked a bit about the 68ers and the 68 demonstrations. One of the major problems for the 68 student movement was not just politics, but the particular kind of politics that was promoted in that a lot of people who were popular in politics or were leading politicians had a sketchy past and, and connections with National Socialism. Brandt didn't. In fact, if anything, he had he had the total opposite. He had no connection with them. The other thing that was really important is he was he was mayor uh, a mayor in Berlin, so he had direct experience of the Cold War and a direct experience of dealing with East Berlin, which would do him in good stead when he finally became chancellor. He wasn't actually elected, I don't think, in the first as when he first became chancellor. It was more of a, a shift in the political coalitions that mm -hmm. allowed him to become chancellor. But but he's he was made famous for basically being the the arch reformer. He reformed. Pfft, loads of things if you just go through his wikipedia page he's got reforms on education domestic reform social assistance healthcare, loads of different things but one of the things he's really really famous is for his um, ostpolitik he championed the idea that we need to normalize relationships with east germany and normalize relationships with the, the other side of the country in order for things to work and this wasn't very popular in fact, he was attacked a lot. Ultimately, led in part to his downfall. I mean, one of the things that was 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 quite difficult for him is he, his PA, his personal assistant, was a spy for the East German intelligence Ooh. services. There was a lot of spying going on. In fact, in one particular incident, there were CDU politicians who were paid off by East Germany in order to get Brandt's reforms through Parliament. So there was a lot of espionage and stuff going on in the background. But the the clear success of the Ostpolitik was the fact that they kept his policies in place once he left. He was followed by, of course, Helmut Schmidt, who took over. Mm. But Helmut Schmidt retained his policies on on the East and, and so he still had a big impact. But Brandt sort of sits high in a lot of people's imagination of what makes a good Chancellor. One of his last actual major acts as a, a public figure was he, he flew to Baghdad in Iraq in 1990 and secured okay. the release of hostages who he brought back, 174 hostages that he brought back from Iraq uh, during the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. So he has like a, he has a really interesting reputation, a really interesting guy. 
and in fact if you go to the center of Nuremberg you'll find a statue of Mr. Willy Brandt in of course Willy Brandt Platz Indeed. Uh, he's sitting on a <laughs> sitting on a bench yeah it's so really really interesting guy it doesn't say this directly anywhere I read but I suspect student demonstrations at the scale that you saw in 68 then resulted in voting age being lowered suggests that there is a, a connection between them but yeah and of course we see that mirrored today to a certain degree with there has been a rise of groups like Fridays for Future mm-hmm for example, in Germany. And it seems that there are more and more young people taking an active part in German politics. I guess to bring this all together, the question is whether the voting age should be once again lowered to start at maybe 16. Mm, It's an interesting question, for sure. I mean, in the UK, this notion was floated at the time of the Brexit vote. The argument that the lives of 16-year-olds would be irreversibly changed by the vote on EU membership. This was really a central argument. It kind of now feels like a really cruel twist of fate, the 16-year-olds at the time of the vote are now 21 years old and facing their first real ugly realities of Brexit. Twitter and newspapers are full of images of empty shelves and supermarkets all around the UK. And it's not something that we're facing on mainland Europe. So, I mean, yeah, the question is how much of that is Brexit? They, they said this before, that a lot of the effects of Brexit wouldn't be mingled with COVID and it would be a great excuse for the British government to go, oh, this is COVID-related, it's not Brexit-related. And actually a lot of newspapers mm-hmm. don't explicitly state it, but I think, how, how can it not? They've already released the statistics of how much trade has been lost because of Brexit and there's a lot of these things down. Uh, services are up, plus 10% services between EU and Britain but everything else is down. Trade's down. I read yesterday that Britain has gone from being Germany's third biggest export market to its seventh largest export market. I mean, the services also involve calling HMRC and customs to try and like work out how to send a piece of cheese. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Possibly. <laughs> if that's wrapped in, I can see why there's been a spike. Like, yeah. it's, it's out of control. Yeah. The paperwork required yeah. uh, to do anything that was alarmingly simple uh, until very very recently but uh, what what i feel makes me uh, feel better about all of this is that clearly everyone who voted for brexit knew exactly what they were voting for they knew they were going to get this and this is exactly what they wanted so well done to you guys you've you finally got what you've wanted which is empty shelves i mean there's no avocados but there's a lot of sovereignty so i mean Vitamins well, I read a really interesting thread <laughs> on Twitter where it was someone who was interest, interested in supermarket supply chains and basically said, watch out for the beer aisle. Alcohol's next. Yeah. Because as soon as you start seeing only John Smith's, Foster's, Stella, the big brands, you know there's a problem because they're basically prioritizing large brands over small brands because they don't have enough haulage. So if you're in Britain and all you can see is Foster's, Tenants and Carling... I would be worried. I mean, your barbecue's ruined from the off. As we mentioned at the top, there are renewed arguments for lowering the voting age, especially in Germany. Young kids on the cusp of adulthood have been striking since 2018 for Fridays for Future, striving to raise awareness of the climate emergency and their acceptance that the situation has to change. It's a strong argument, given that we have to listen to the next generation on matters that will affect them far more greatly than ourselves. As the proverb goes, a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. Wise words. 16-year-olds are allowed to go into a supermarket and buy wine and beer and have a good time, but they're not allowed to vote. It's it's, it's pretty weird. Uh, some of them will be able to drive with 16 as well if they live in rural environments. There, there's a lot of adulthood already in, in modern Germany at 16, so it kind of feels like maybe even just on a few key issues being allowed to vote. But of course, 
This would mean the Greens would have a, an even larger spike than what they can get predicted at times. So should the voting age be lowered again? Or is this always going to be blocked for fear that all these hippie kids who want clean air and water and a place to be safe would vote Green and not for the likes of Armin Lash at CDU? I had an interesting experience a couple of weeks ago. I do a lot of work with Azubis apprentices mm -hmm. for non-German speakers and one of them gave a presentation where they invited all the CDU politicians for an event because they were experts and I did ask them I was like why did you want to invite Marcus Soda why did you want to invite uh, Friedrich Mertz to mm -hmm. these events and they said, oh well Mertz is a, an expert in finance and I'm like is he have you actually listened to what he says because he's really fucking not <laughs> i think don't underestimate how conservative rural areas really are and how deep that runs but also don't underestimate how much influence mm. parents have over their kids and what their their politics are so i don't think it necessarily means that the greens would suddenly romp into uh, the bundestag on the back of a wave of 16 year old voters why why can't we have a younger voting age i think it's very common in germany to, to dismiss people because of their age why not trust the youth to look at things in a reasonable way yeah i mean you're, you're really facing an uphill battle in, in german culture because it is essentially conservative mm -hmm. uh, when it comes down to politics and even simple things like appearance are very 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 seriously uh, taken issues here what i would say is doing some research on this on willie brandt actually and on the lowering of the voting age i found a new york times article from december the 1st 1970 the headline of which is young german voters impress elders uh, this is uh, super interesting i'll just read the first paragraph Bonn, November 30th, remember Bonn was the capital of, of Germany or was the, the centre of German politics uh, while Berlin was divided during the Cold War. Bonn, November 30th, the new 18 to 21-year-old voters in West Germany appear to be conscientious, highly independent and rather sober, contrary to the fears of some of their elders who had expected violence or apathy. Goes on, memories of the chanting destructive youths who were led through the streets of Berlin, Heidelberg and elsewhere by student revolutionary, revolutionaries in 1968 left a strong impression that the young people would rather recognise the political system than work to improve it but the new voters among them show signs of working within the system not least in the city of Kassel where Ch Chancellor Willy Brandt met with Premier Willy Stoff of East Germany last May <laughs> Willy Brandt and Willy Stoff yeah, yeah they, they chose the Willy spent differently so uh, yeah interesting <laughs> but it shows it shows that like they, they there was these similar scepticisms about reducing the age to 18 I don't see why reducing it to 16 is, is such a, a terrible idea uh, I've yet to see an argument that would change my mind. But One term that we have bandied around a fair bit since we started, especially when talking about the UK, is soft power. It's a huge part of what our international culture is. And there are three sources of a nation's soft power. Those three sources are culture, political values and foreign policies with internationally consensus credibility and moral authority. The UK is looking pretty shitty right now on those last two, so I guess it's time to focus on our cultural soft power. Uh, so first question for you, Nick, what is our best soft power export right now? You know, I spent so long thinking about this question. I was thinking specifically about how much British culture you see in Germany. First thing mm -hmm. I was thinking was television. You see a lot of British television on Netflix and on Amazon the big popular tv shows we've talked in the past about monty python but also things like fleabag mm -hmm. killing eve bbc television a lot of the time is, mm -hmm. is still very popular british art 
Banksy's got a really big exhibition running at the moment. Uh, it was in Munich, and I think it's moved, or it's still in Munich. I can't remember. Maybe it's divided between the cities. So art's still a big factor. Architecture, a lot of architecture mm-hmm. in Berlin has been designed by British architects. The Bundestag was rebuilt and redesigned by Norman Foster. Glass dome on the top. Norman Foster was responsible for that. Other stuff as well. So music is a big one. It's quite generic. Ed Sheeran that kind of thing I think Stormzy hasn't quite travelled yet yeah. I think some people know him but he's one of the bigger acts in Britain he's, he's not really he doesn't hit the charts in the same way well I think to appreciate Stormzy you have to have a very very good grasp of the English language and to really understand him you have mm. to have an understanding of British culture the people who like him like him mm-hmm. I think that's the truth and I don't necessarily understand everything he says because it's, it's not always about his language but I think you're right to, there's a, a multiple levels on which you can appreciate certain certain British uh, act Stormzy mm. in particular I'm not sure if this is the same amount of levels with Ed Sheeran <laughs> <laughs> he's a very easy person to poke fun at because for a lot of music fans his music isn't necessarily what they like it is very very radio friendly and that's something that I'm not a fan of I don't like radio friendly music because I'm a massive snob um, <laughs> but I mean yeah there's we can't rely on Ed Sheeran to keep banging out hits that the whole world seems to love on the radio nor can we expect Daniel Craig to keep churning out Bond films that make us all seem like not to be messed with thug spies with a license to kill Lewis Hamilton can't be expected to keep winning F1 races until Brexit dividends kick in we need soft power that's cheaper bills and production costs suggestions <laughs> what for cheaper bills and production costs yeah mm, I mean, it's soft yeah. power but it, it doesn't cost a lot of money Ed Sheeran stadium tour that, that's cost millions to run that stuff I'm hoping you've got an answer for this because I don't have an answer for this I can't really think of anything well I mean anything you were going to say I was going to say it doesn't work because they're all really expensive this <laughs> is the problem apart from kids tv this right. is a nice little niche that does have pretty low production costs uh, compared to others we're, we're landing on this because britain has been accused of shaping children so this actually comes from a story from the guardian and the headline was having a go u.s parents say pepper pig is giving their kids british accents so this was apparently the second most in-demand cartoon in u.s households for 12 month run that ended in february according to parrot analytics so yeah the second most watched kids show in the u.s is peppa pig it's massively popular though it's really popular mm-hmm. i'm totally terrified of it because i know it's coming into my future that i'm going to end up watching lots of peppa pig but yeah it's super popular it's massive massive it is this is a, it's a worldwide hit parents across the u.s say their children are acquiring british accents thanks to peppa pig peppa Wurtz for the german audience linguistic experts have cast doubt on such claims but some parents insist the pepper effect, as it's being called, has their American children saying mommy instead of mommy, using phrases such as give it a go and pronouncing tomato, tomato, not tomato. I don't know. I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> this sounds fine to us. Give it a go. Have a pop. Have a crack at it. Take a stab at it. Give it a whirl. See if it flies. We bloody love a good phrasal verb here at Decades From Home. What do you call your mum? Is, is she a mum or a mummy? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know what I you call your mum? So long. I've seen her in so long. I've seen her in so Yeah, I guess like mum. If, I take it, if I'm taking the piss, I'll say yeah. mum. But yeah, mum. That's right. I'm not calling her mummy. You've got to be worried about a 40-year-old man who calls his mother mummy. Not to mummy shame anyone, but it's not my bag. I'm assuming it's the same for you, though. Uh, I call my mum mother. Uh, when I'm talking to her. <laughs> <laughs> Good example of how, how English can be used, certainly by the British. The most formal form 
just sounds like an insult. <laughs> Hello, like, mother. <laughs> Hello, mother. Yes, mother. Like if I said if I say that, my mum would just kick off at me definitely. If I was like, "Yes, mother," she'd be like, "Don't you take the piss out of yeah, me, I think son?" Yes, mother is definitely that's that's ripe for a, a, a snide look from from mummy. Yeah. <laughs> the show was popular with pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, kitten, kindergarten, kinder. <laughs> kindergarten crowd before the pandemic but it has experienced record-breaking demand since lockdown restrictions started last year unsurprisingly according to data from pirate analytics peppa pig was the second most in-demand cartoon as simon said in u.s households after spongebob squarepants that's spongebob schramkopf for the germans (laughs) compared to its domestic market audience demand for peppa pig in the u.s is 112 percent higher than in the uk what a statistic, 112% higher than in the UK. <laughs> Thank you, Parrot Analytics. <laughs> Doing all the heavy lifting. <laughs> in 2019, Dr. Susanna Levy, an associate professor of communicative sciences and disorders at New York University, said she was sceptical about the pepper effect, telling the Guardian toddlers typically develop the accent of the community around them by interactions, not by watching. So, do you think you've picked up any accents along the way? I mean, yeah, I put on accents along the way, but I don't think I've really picked one up. So, I mean, we've spoken before about mm-hmm. the way that I adapt. Uh, and I think most British people do adapt to the audience they're talking with. When I am on the phone with my mum, uh, I speak very properly as if I'm teaching a class because I want her to know that the money she spent on my education wasn't completely wasted. <laughs> when I was speaking to my friends back home, uh, especially those based in London and the South East, uh, I definitely adapt and become more urban. The T's and H's disappear and becomes nothing instead of nothing. And then I also am a bit of a sucker for copying people I speak to. When I speak to our Scottish friends, I'm suddenly going to say I instead of yes. Yeah, I, I'm really bad for for sort of chameleon copying people. We got a tweet, didn't we, yesterday? It was mm-hmm. a really good tweet. I have to quote it because it made my day. <laughs> yeah, it changed my day. <laughs> it changed your day for sure, yeah. A friend of the podcast, Dr. Sandra Janssen, who is a linguist and knows about these things, sent us a tweet which said, this Monday started off with at 40% German using a intro intervocalic glottaling. That's a really hard word to say. <laughs> you definitely got to leave that in. <laughs> While no speaking German, and it already made my day. Though at Decades From Home, it's not a northern feature, you are using it as well. And I was yeah. like, okay, you're picking up my, <laughs> my accent. <laughs> or you're picking up my pronunciation style. But I lived in Scotland, so I think that's quite a common Scottish feature. So I'm not sure if it's just a northern thing or a Scottish thing but yeah you can pick that stuff up when I was reflecting on what she said I assumed that it was the word garten was the way that mm-hmm. I think you said it but, but I I called it out for being a northern lilt and yeah I'm definitely lazy on my T's uh, so yeah thank you <laughs> for calling calling me out on it and uh, letting me learn a bit about it. I don't myself. think so I think she was celebrating yeah, it, was, it if anything. No, I, I didn't feel attacked whatsoever <laughs> that it was a sort of like huh? I'm doing what? <laughs> it's always interesting when an expert gives you some some insight into something that you do you had no idea you were doing. More mm-hmm. of that, please. Yes. <laughs> More of that. Anyway, uh, Levy did concede that children might learn unfamiliar words from a show, including tomato and zebra, and thereby, in the case of Peppa Pig, come to use the British pronunciation. So it can happen. It can Fair happen. Enough. 
to be expected. I mean, zebra is just madness. So let's just leave that there. Zebra. Sorry, American audience. <laughs> Across social media, however, Pepper remains in full effect as parents post evidence of their toddler speaking in British accents. In one TikTok video posted last August that has been viewed more than 10 million times, Dominique Parr, a Seattle-based mother, filmed her daughter, Hazel, repeating the lines from the show, including, how clever and oh dear now I, I love that oh dear it's, it's a really nice it's much better than like holy shit cuz or what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> WTF <laughs> yeah Preeti Karana a Wall Street Journal reporter recently tweeted my five year old niece uh, had an American accent before the pandemic now she has a posh English accent after spending a year at home watching Peppa Pig this phenomenon is so widespread that it's trending hashtag Pepper effect one user replied oh yes with four s's because they suck my daughter commonly uses words and phrases like sat nav petrol can i have a go etc and for christmas i had to put out a freaking mince pie for father christmas or as we call it here in the states santa well we call it we call him santa in britain as well it's not this is the thing right and there's a, this is the last thing I'll say on it. It's like this culture, soft power stuff. It's a transfer from both sides. American soft power and, and American culture is part of a, a lot of the homogenization of European culture for sure. The, but that's not necessarily a terrible thing. And equally, if your kid says Father Christmas, well, you know, you've just got a Victorian child. What a bonus. Stick them up a chimney. That's what I say. Stick them up a chimney. Get them working in the cotton, cotton factory. Yeah, that's what you do with Victorian kids, right? Into pits. <laughs> in last week's episode we mentioned the fact that it's when we open our mouths that people here quickly gather that we are not necessarily what we had seemed we're not from around these parts our german <laughs> is a work in progress and it's foolish to fall back on the age-old notion of don't worry Everyone speaks English. They don't. A Statista.com survey on English proficiency in European countries in 2019, published by D. Clark, stated that the share of population with knowledge of English in Germany was 64%. That's far from shabby, 64%, but that term, knowledge of English, is a very loose mm -hmm. gauge for measurement of competence, I'd say. I have knowledge of Spanish, but I'm a long way from being proficient. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges of moving to a non-English-speaking country is the necessity to learn a foreign language. For some, it's a good reason not to move. The challenge can seem insurmountable. This is especially so for the British. The British are remarkable in Europe for their relative inability to learn another language. A recent study has shown that there's been a dramatic decline in language learning and ability since the decision to remove compulsory language study from the GCSE, General Certificate of Secondary Education, which is something like the Abitur, but in Britain we have two sets of qualifications you can gain from secondary school, which is the GCSE and the A-level, or they might have changed them now, I can't remember. Yeah, you have GCSE, AS right. level, and then A-level, so yeah, there are three levels now. You're well ahead of the uh, of what's going on in, in Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, removal of compulsory language study was done in 2004. According to the internet, 38% of UK citizens report that they can speak well enough to have a conversation, at least one language other than their mother tongue. 18% at least two languages and 6% at least three languages. 62% of UK citizens cannot speak any second language. Fewer than half of UK school pupils choose to take a language compared with 76% of pupils taking languages in 2002. This drop-off in language learning should come as no surprise. Even though I graduated secondary school before the law changed and was therefore required to take at least one language during my GCSEs, it was never explained to us why learning a language was useful. It was simply another subject hurdle to jump. 
Considering that throughout school I was constantly told how critical it was to have math skills, you won't get anywhere without maths, it's odd that no one pointed out the myriad benefits of learning a language. So, Simon, what was your experience of languages at school? Did you have the similar maths-focused education that I seem to be exposed to? Well, yeah, it was, it was a private boarding school, so everything was, was taken very, very seriously, I guess. Maths I didn't enjoy, but I, I always performed quite well. I was in the top sets for it. But when it came to GCSEs, the options I took were kind of crazily latin and german so yeah i I ended up doing three languages at school or four if you count english Mm -hmm. which you didn't so three foreign languages so i did french german and latin dropping french earliest and i was very lucky my my teachers especially my german teachers were very very good at making it feel relevant in a sort of cultural way it wasn't just about learning the grammar and learning the language it was about learning about germany at the same time and it definitely ignited my passion uh, for German culture, German philosophy, German literature and things. So yeah, I'm very thankful, but I, I definitely understand that it's not like that in a lot of places. The modern European languages especially uh, seem to have taken a bit of a hit recently. But I mean, yeah, I, I probably wasted my time doing Latin. I was not good at Latin. What about you? What did you study? Well, that's, I, st- I got a chance to study Latin. I went to a comprehensive for a, for a vast proportion of my secondary education, which is a Gesamtschule you have in, in Germany. And mm-hmm. it was just a subject you had to do. But I wasn't a great student at school. I was pretty terrible. I was excluded a lot. I was not violent, but violence was done to me, but very little violence was done by me. But I was often involved in quite antisocial behavior and things like that. So... I think I was considered a bit of a lost cause. So no one really explained why we were doing anything. And I didn't really take a lot of my school career seriously. But I kick myself now because I live in Germany. I remember distinctly saying, Mm. why am I learning German? I'm never going to live in Germany. (laughs) What a fucking idiot 16-year-old me was. Honestly, go back in time and kick myself in the face. I mean, I've always kind of assumed that Latin was a bit of a niche subject. But there's always a part of me where I've especially when when we were working at the university together, I would often ask the question, so who here studied Latin? And like, no one, no one here studied Latin. It's very, very rare, especially for young people today. Niche. Which I, I guess mm. is a shame in, in many ways, because it is a good foundation. I mean, this is the argument that's always made. It's a good foundation mm. for the romantic languages. It did help with my Spanish uh, when it came to learning a bit of Spanish. But yeah, I, I was really bad at it. In fact, the head of Latin... I never passed an exam until my very last one at GCSE. I passed that just. But the head of Latin, the day before the Latin exam, came to me and was like, instead of doing the Latin exam, would you be interested in doing the classics exam? <laughs> really? I like, but I haven't, oh, that's optimism. I haven't studied classics. He's like, yeah, but we still think you might do better. <laughs> yeah. Just like, you have an innate understanding of Greek mythology. Go for it. Yeah, you know about Zeus turning into an ox so he can have sex with random women. Sure, you'll be fine, you know. I don't, yeah. I mean, it's great levels of optimism from your teachers. I think she was just desperate to not have a a fail for the first time. In fairness, when I was at school, I remember going into the careers counsellor's office and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I'd said, oh, I'd really like to go to university. And she just looked at us and went, there's no chance you're going to university you should probably do um, a trade learn to become a plumber or a brickie which is not a bad idea it's not what i wanted to do but it's not a bad idea having having some trade skills i think a lot of people benefit from them if you decide to to, to go in that direction or it's just a skill set that's actually very useful for life but it wasn't wasn't something i was interested in but again i wasn't the best student so i'm not surprised they were offering me that 
bit of advice. Uh, it's a, it's a, a slight shade difference from being told not to do the Latin exam. <laughs> and there's no temptation to go back and like rub your masters in her face. Um, yes, of course, but that's very <laughs> that's very unbecoming. That's not why I did a masters. I didn't do it to, to to stick a finger up to. I was not a good I was not a good kid when I was a teenager. I had a lot of problems, but that's that's another story for another day. So yeah, tied into this decline in language skills is the often heard phrase. Well, everyone speaks English anyway. I heard it at school, I heard it when I told people I plan to move to Germany, and I still hear it today from British people who actually live here in Germany. It's like the sacred mantra of the British, repeated so much that it's somehow become gospel truth. I've heard and been part of discussions where British people actually discourage others from learning a language, as if someone else's attempt to better themselves is somehow a threat. Why bother they whine? The Germans speak better English than we do. Any thoughts on that, Simon? I always get pretty distressed when you hear people publicly saying that they have no interest in improving the language skills of the country they live in but you also get the other side where every now and again you'll meet someone from the uk or somewhere else and they've obviously spent a lot of time and worked very hard on getting very good german and then they shame people for not speaking the same level and i think that that duality makes it very very difficult and yeah you have to kind of defend yourself sometimes like i've said on this podcast many many times that i personally don't have the interest or the capacity to really learn daddy das and a lot of the grammar stuff my german is never going to be perfect and i am totally fine with that doesn't bother me one bit but occasionally you do meet people that like pick you up on the mistake it's like well yeah i don't care buddy it's fine uh so i think that's that's the challenge um but yeah, I mean, it depends on where you live as well. I mean, again, we've spoken about this before. There's a huge difference between moving to Berlin with no German and moving to Augsburg with no German. You will have hugely different levels of success relying on, on English on its own. I had this conversation a few weeks ago when when someone had asked about what a German should say when... So, like, often Germans will... You make a mistake in German and someone will want to speak English with you. And that's something that happens a lot. And I think it's 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 kind of insulting to some people. Some some people find it as a, a bit of a life raft. It's just diff- horses for courses when you've got someone who wants to speak English with you. Mm. I mean, the, the question is, do the Germans speak English better than native speakers? The question is, do the Germans speak English better than native speakers? We both have some experience with this topic, given that we started our careers here teaching business English. Although much of what I do today focuses on training communication, intercultural and organisational topics, not so long ago, I was making lesson plans and creating activities, all with the aim of teaching various businesses English. What I learned from those years is this. Yes, the German education system prepares many young people with a technical knowledge of the English language. More than once, I found myself being challenged over the minutiae of the present perfect or face demands from a room full of people to go into detail on conditional sentences. English grammar rules are drilled into German school pupils to the point that it appears to be the only focus of lessons. What the German education system fails to prepare young people for is the reality that the English learned in school is light years away from the English spoken by the native speaker. Phrases such as phrases such as all right or the glorious usage of the word fuck or bloody are nowhere near the curriculum. Native English, like German, is a minefield of colloquialisms, idioms, and weird phrasing, not to mention the complications of pronunciation and accents. 
My wife's experience is similar to many of her compatriots. She arrived in England in the halcyon days of 2007 with top marks in English and ready to start her Erasmus year abroad. She landed at Newcastle Airport, confident of her skills and ready to take on the challenge. That confidence was severely rocked as soon as she spoke to one of my Geordie brethren. She couldn't understand anything anyone was saying. The English they were speaking was unlike any she had heard or learned at school or in the first years of her English degree in Germany. She was overjoyed to find that Geordies were incredibly welcoming and helpful, but she had real problems understanding what people were saying. They spoke quickly, they kept saying pet, even though there were no obvious animals in sight, and every sentence seemed to end in the word like. So do you want to clarify what pet means, and are there any other pet-like terms that people should know? I guess pet is best translated as shats. Yeah, I think that's a good translation for it, yeah. It's a sort of friendly term of endearment, Usually for women. I say, would you call me pet? I wouldn't call you pet, but unless I was taking the piss out of you. What do I have to do? But women will call men <laughs> pet, and men will call women pet. So that's usually okay. the dynamic is gendered, certainly sort of gendered language uh, to a certain extent. I think, again, those rules might be changing. I wouldn't be, if, if a Geordie bloke called me pet, I don't think I'd be that put out by it, <laughs> particularly. It's not something I've experienced, but yeah. I don't think I don't gender is fluid, baby. So I don't really mind what you call it. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think there are there are other terms like that, right? There's, there's every region has their own own version of these terms of endearment. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them are animals, which is a, a <laughs> weird thing. So hen is one. So head to Glasgow, and if you're a woman, you'll be called this all the time. Salt and vinegar, yeah. any fish and chips, hen? Yeah, it's one that I had to get used to pretty quickly. Hen. This is one of my favourites. I think it's one of your favourites too. Duck. I love it. Or me duck. Duck. Another example of bird-based <laughs> terms of affection. This one you'll hear around the Midlands of England, usually when a man addresses a woman or a woman addresses a man. Do you want to say that sentence? Because I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it. All right, my duck. <laughs> I'm not going to do it justice. When I worked in a call centre, my first job out of uni, I worked for Seven Trent Water, and mm-hmm. we serviced uh, Kidderminster. Kidderminster seems to be the epicentre of duck. Uh, so a lot really? of time people would answer the phone and just go, hey, duck. That would be their way of answering the phone at Kidderminster. So yeah fond memories of duck this is one of one of my favorite ones my lover my lover don't be alarmed if you're in the southwest of england and anyone calls you this it doesn't mean that they want to take you to bed it might do but not always it's a common term of endearment and greeting in this area so even the milkman (laughs) might greet you with a good morning me lover which is i like it i like it a lot hello me lover (laughs) there's a lot of positive intonation on that one it's really really nice yeah closer to where i'm from babes if you're in Essex, which is east of London, you'll hear this at the end of pretty much every sentence. Fancy going to town, babes? What are you doing there, babes? <laughs> but I, I use this. This is I, I call my wife, babes. Yeah, no, I've heard you say. I've heard you say it. Yeah, I've, that's, that's right. I've heard. Oh, it's that sweet. Yeah. It's oh, I babes. find it quite sweet. Um, I'm going to give you yeah. this one because this is from yeah. your second, third home. I don't know what we would call it. But. <laughs> yeah, my fine Wurzel, my roots. Uh, yeah. Boyo. <laughs> boyo so boyo is the first one on this list that's used primarily for men uh, so this is a welsh term uh used between men in much the same way as mate or pal all right boyo yeah yeah boyo i like it I, I, I do it's not a word that i would particularly pick up if we're talking about transferring language and accents and things like that but you know you're in wales when you hear it that's sort of a good it's a good a good signifier Ooh, yes. definitely points in the direction of australian short forms because a lot of those will take down and put an o on the end uh so milkman becomes milko postman becomes posto uh so yeah boy becomes boyo um 
But yeah, it's, it's got a nice roundness to it. Boy, oh. Love it. And the last three are ones you might encounter in, in London or a certain part of London. Princess, Treasure or Beautiful. Obviously, Treasure, Schatz of Deutsch. Have you, uh, these are generally sort of Cockney terms. So the language of East London, typically working class. If you're a woman in the back of a black London cab, the chances are that you've been called one of these. The use of these words can seem quite patronising, but they are meant in a friendly and affectionate way, not really to offend. Lovely chatting to you, princess. I don't like princess. I really don't like it. I don't like it at all. But it, it, Princess is a weird one because it does... It, it brings in sort of young into the equation as Agent, well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my go-to is darling. The majority of women that I'm friendly with, if I'm just like going around the bar saying hello to people, I'll be right, darling. You're right, darling. Uh, instead of the full with the G on the end, and yeah, it kind of caused an issue for me. It's one of the reasons I call my wife babes because we've been dating for a while, and she realised that I was calling other women darling, um, and yeah, that wasn't particularly well received. At that time. <laughs> yeah, no, understandable. Like it's a definite. <laughs> definite critical cultural fail i guess but uh, i think i think all of these you have to be maybe minus boyo but i think a lot of these you have to be pretty careful with because not everyone likes them not everyone likes being called pet i've certainly had some negative reactions when when i've used the word pet when i was working in, in bars in newcastle and i think i would definitely i'd definitely get a negative reaction if i called someone beautiful for sure yeah you do have to have that that cheeky essex cockney Mm-hmm. charm to, to have any chance of getting away with this with a complete stranger I think it, intonation is, is key because it, it can just come off quite creepy I think a little bit creepy mm. a little bit lecherous so in a way that perhaps and I mean having doesn't... the genuine accent is also mm. key like if you if I did in my voice hello my lover <laughs> that, that really does sound oh I've gone weak at the knees bordering on a threat <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll find that so much in Germany which maybe says a lot about Germany that Schatz is quite commonly used mouse uh, mousy but I, no. I for, for our daughter I, I, I like to create ridiculous na- nicknames all the time so we call my daughter Babu a lot talk about the babu so that was one of mine and i think babu. there's a couple of others that i've that i've used in the past <laughs> but i do like a i do like a nice little nickname but i don't think i'll be calling anyone as i w- walk around the streets of germany babu because they would think i was incredibly weird or more weird than i already know. Before you get the wrong idea, I'm not against the nuances of German, British English or American English for that matter. They are important cultural features of these languages that have developed over centuries. They are fun and curious and tell us a lot about how the world used to be. I love my dialect and I work very hard to retain my accent when I'm not teaching. It is something I hope to pass on to my children as part of their mixed heritage. I noticed I said children there, I only have one child. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Uh, My wife also gets a kick out of the fact that she is regularly assumed to be a native Geordie. Although it was difficult at first, my wife has acclimatised over the many years we've been together. Her Geordie pronunciation of water is truly a thing of beauty. Is that what she says? Water? Water. Aye. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah, this this word causes problems because I say water or water, depending on who I'm ordering a water from. And of course, my wife learned a lot of her English through me. And so on our very first day in Portland, Oregon, when we moved to the US, we went to a bar called the Moo Moo Bar, uh, which is pretty funny for the German listeners out there. And she ordered a water. And the waitress replied with, 
on the rocks or on the rocks and my wife didn't really understand i was just like yeah and i was like no 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 no, water not vodka yeah the woman had understood vodka on the rocks which would have been quite a nasty surprise so i was luckily i was there to rescue her from a, a really nasty surprise with a vodka water <laughs> or or the best surprise ever <laughs> actually i had the hardest time in the u.s I had so many interactions where the native speaker in the relationship was having problems and my wife was just no problem at all. I mean, she's she's essentially a native speaker. Her pronunciation was so much more solid than mine. And so I was often saying stuff and people would go, what? Or pardon? Or sorry? Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of my favorite interactions was uh, there was one instance where I <laughs> went to a hotel and I was speaking, I was with my brother-in-law and his wife and my wife and we were standing waiting to to go somewhere and he said to me does does the hotel have a sauna and i said a sauna oh i don't know i'll ask and i went up to the desk and i said excuse me do you have a sauna and the guy looked at me and went a, 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 and i said like, you know a sauna and he looked at me and i said like, i don't know how else i'm going to say this word he obviously doesn't understand what i'm saying i was like sauna <laughs> and he's like and i said like, okay what's happening here and then my wife rocked up and said do you have a sauna with the German pronunciation, he was like, a sauna, yeah, we have two saunas. What, that's what they call them in America? Yeah, sauna, and I was just like, our mind was blown. I was just <laughs> like, oh God. But it, it happened a lot, and I think this, that's the difference between native native languages, is there's a, there's a, there's a real difference in pronunciation. Uh, I think people are expecting English speakers to have a cut glass accent. They're certainly not expecting someone who has, what was it, guttural TVs or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, we've forgotten already. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, our apologies to uh, the the good doctor. <laughs> sorry, Sandra, we've really let you down. <laughs> Dialect and colloquialisms are one thing, but it's not just these points that cause English learners to question their language skills. Sit through any meeting that involves a native speaker, and you see the wealth of ridiculous language that's been created to assuage the egos of native English-speaking middle managers. Buzzwords are the bane of my existence. We've spoken about this before. Several times a year, I'll have to address the wealth of incomprehensible gibberish that has been thought up by people who surely imagine themselves to be great communicators. Yeah, the it's one of the things that really irritates us too, is this idea that we need all these exciting buzzwords. And then you get... And this, this is a real challenge, especially for people who, if you've got a meeting where there's uh, Indian colleagues, Chinese colleagues... South American, Mexican colleagues, American colleagues, all in a call with Germans, and you've got loads of different levels of English, and then you've got mm. a German middle manager who's spent a lot of time reading management textbooks, and he's he's all about circling back and low hanging fruit and all of this jazz, and it just leaves people uncertain of what the hell is going on. We've spoken about these words before: meetings filled with people deep diving, synergizing, or leveling up while actively being agile. At the end of the day. The trick of a good buzzword is that it sounds like something people should know, while at the same time saying very little. So when someone uses a buzzword, those who do not understand them are unlikely to say anything. They just nod, write them down, and then after the meeting, send an email to find out what the hell they were just told. <laughs> Worse still, they sound like something important. German employees believe they must use them too, which is why I often find myself unpicking phrases like eye-to-eye meeting, which means face-to-face <laughs> meeting, a bastardization of the term eye-to-eye to agree. Yeah, it's uh, chaos sometimes. It really is chaos. And my new least favorite <laughs> phrase is to dos. We have many to dos, and I'm like, to do list. You have a lot to do, or you have a very long to do list. But yeah, people are constantly talking about their to dos. 
despite attempts to roll back reality, we truly live in a global society. And unless something truly catastrophic occurs, this is unlikely to change. English is now spoken by more non-native speakers than by native speakers, and the latter surely need to remember that. We are rightly protective of the English language, just as the Germans are rightly protective of their own language. Looking at you, VDS. But if both sides could learn one simple lesson, it is this. Think about your audience. If you know you're speaking to a non-native speaker of your language, do them a favour. Think about how you phrase things. One good sentence spoken by a non-native is not an invitation to suddenly speak a mile a minute. It's a chance to communicate. And I really, really, really believe that. I think it's something that you don't get so much in German because people aren't used to thinking about what words they use. They're not always used to dealing with non-native German speakers, but I think it's word choice can be really important. It's a real skill being able to simplify your language. And I think it's really hard. It's really hard for British people mm. to do because, like you said, we had talked about phrasal verbs, right? It's super difficult. Maybe, maybe using this podcast, we can we can change the way that uh, our, our English-speaking brethren communicate. Yeah, I mean, we, we I do see this a lot. Like when you ask, if I ask my wife, for example, what a word is that she's used, I was like, "What's that mean?" And then she'll repeat the word to me. I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, but what does it mean?" And she says it again. It's like. I'm not. I'm not asking like what the word is. I'm telling you like what does it mean? Explain it to me. And it's something that I certainly find easier after over ten years of teaching behind me. Like synonyms come quickly, but it, it can be a real challenge. I say this isn't something that people naturally think about, like how to dumb down the language and how to explain around things that are often complex. If I'm asking a word that I've never heard, it's because it's either a local dialect or it's highbrow. It's a word that maybe a non-native isn't expected to learn so yeah it's, it can be challenging but i wouldn't say it's dumbing down i think it's just accepting that your language is being used by by lots of different people and i think this is mm. this is something that only increases the more different types of people you have in the country you know it's not necessarily a negative but i think a lot of people do see it as, as maybe dumbing down or i think there's other things like people feel like they're they come across more intelligent if they speak quickly and I think mm. that that for me is is a killer. Is is actually speed of speech, just being able to hear what words are being used is is really clear and important for me at least. Uh, mm. But I do think that yeah, I think also that ability to translate things is is great. But at the same time, often people will give me the English translation rather than the synonym, which is actually what I'd mm. prefer. Let's keep it German. Let's not just switch to English because I've asked you what the meaning of a word is. But yeah, these are. I think this is something that will change over time. The more my German improves, hopefully, the more my German improves. Hello, zusammen. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who's been retweeting the show. Don't forget to give us a rating if you're using the Apple Podcast app or any other app that has a rating system. Give us five stars. We deserve it, I think. A quick shout out to Snooker, Al, Maurizio, and of course, Dr. Sandra for the support and spreading the word of the podcast. Always appreciated. If you'd like to share the show, don't forget to tag us by using the hashtag Decades From Home or lowercase. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, you can tweet me at 40% German, and you can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40% German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss.
Hi there. I was just wondering if it's possible to change my name, even though I live in Germany. It is? Great. My name? It's Maddox. Simon Maddox. Yes. Right, I'd like to change my first name only to Barry. Yes, Barry. Why are you laughing? Yes, so I'd like to become Barry Maddox. All I need is a solicitor to make the document. Wow, that's surprisingly easy. And what type of document do I need? Okay, excellent. Finally, Barry Maddox. This is going to surprise Simon. <laughs> Sorry, yes, yes, I'll, I'll hold. 